Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland. Welcome to Night Fright. Folks, in 1968, a book was released, a book so profoundly disturbing in its content that it virtually stood the world on its ear. Now, why? What was so explosive in, its co- in those contents that theologians banned it? It was so explosive that it spawned an industry of naysayers dedicated to debunking its contents. Now, that book was called Chariots of the Gods. Its author, the legendary Eric von Daniken. Our guest tonight, Yorio Tusaklis, I hope I have pronounced that right, and if I haven't, you'll correct me in a few seconds, my friend, has been the director of Eric von Daniken's Center for Ancient Astronaut Research for over 12 years. He is also the publisher of Legendary Times magazine, the world's only and definitive ancient astronaut research journal. Tonight on Night Fright, get that coffee going. Settle into your most comfy chair. Ease off the pedal if you're driving. We're taking you back in time back to the very dawn of civilization to examine all the possibilities of ancient alien colonization right here on planet Earth. Strap in and hang on. Here we go. There is a time to question. There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Welcome to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. Now your host, Brent Holland. Folks, if you're just joining us, tonight our guest is the legendary Giorgio Tusakalis, and he's the director of Eric Von Daniken's Center for Ancient Astronaut Research. And you all know Eric Von Daniken's name because he wrote that groundbreaking book in 1968 called Chariots of the Gods, where he believes... And we're going to go into that tonight in great depth, and perhaps you can decide for yourself finally that the aliens made not only visitations way back then, but were integral in helping our cultures right around the world flourish. And that's where I want to go right now. Is there one place in the world that they seem to grab, and I'm talking about the aliens here now, Giorgio, is there one place in the world that they have seemed to have gravitated more than any other? No, because the entire theory essentially, you know, um, it's, it's a worldwide phenomenon. And that's why I was saying that it doesn't really matter, you know, what culture you go to. Now, obviously, there are certain countries and certain regions, regions of the world, world where it's more predominant that uh, speaks for uh, visits of ancient aliens in, in the remote past. And that is, you know, I mean, the first things that come to mind are South America and Egypt and Sumeria and all those places and ancient Greece. 
Um, you know, and, and then there are other places like uh, the Scandinavian country where it's a bit less obvious, but even there we have very bizarre structures. Uh, for example, in Denmark and Finland, we have what's called, uh, uh, in Denmark especially, we have called what's called a trelleborg. And a trelleborg is this round kind of uh, mound, and essentially... Uh, mainstream archaeology says that this was built by Vikings, but the problem is that the Vikings were a seafaring culture and a seafaring culture, and um, you know they lived on the water. And the Trelleborg is about 50 miles inland, so not very handy for Vikings. Plus, it's a very geometric. Uh, it's a very geometric uh, structure. It's very precise. It's very interesting. And, uh, you know, according to the mainstream archaeologists, you know, that is not what um, mainstream or that is not what the Vikings were known for. I mean, they were quite a, a tough bunch, you know. And so one day, about 10, 20 years, well, not 20 years ago, about 10, 15 years ago, this happy pilot by the name of Traven Hansen, he uh, flew around in his little, you know, chestnut that he rented, and he, he flew around this trelleborg, and then he noticed how on one end or on one side of that circle, even though circles don't have sides, but in one quadrant of the circle, uh, there were these outlines of what looked like boats, and they all sort of point, and they were in a row, but kind of, you know, uh, in a curve, and they all seem to point in one direction. Huh. So, bless his heart, he put on the autopilot, and he followed this that direction. Now, mind you, he's in a plane, so the autopilot means, he, you know, it says the, the crow flies, I mean, straight ahead. And interesting enough, after about 80 kilometers, or about 50, 60 miles, he, he came across another Viking mound. And he's like, all right, well, this is interesting. Uh, now, two mounds can always be connected with one line. I mean, it, that's no big deal. So he kept flying, and after 162 kilometers, 120 miles, he came across another mound. And then after 30 miles, he came across a fourth mound. So there are four Viking mounds, I mean, quote-unquote Viking mounds, that are connected with one line. And he was uh, he was astonished. So... What the good man did, he went home, he took out a big uh, map from Europe, and he connected those four dots, those four mounds, and he extended the line all the way down. And guess where he ended up? He ended up at the Oracle in Delphi, Greece. Really? And when he, and when he further... When, when he further drew the line, he ended up on the Giza Plateau in Egypt. So right there... That is not coincidence. So, you know, because the, the story that we have with Apollo is that, yes, Apollo's main place where he would always descend from the sky in a flying chariot, mind you, um, he would interact with people and give them advice and teach them, especially in medicine, but also in the mathematics and agriculture, in all those different scientific uh, uh, faculties. Now, from time to time, Apollo would say, guys, I'm really sorry, but I have to leave. And 
you know, the, the Greeks would ask him, well, where are you going? And he's like, well, I'm going to the land of the Hyperboreans, and that land lies beyond where the north wind comes. Now, that's Scandinavia. Wow. So right there, you have an, also in Scandinavia, you have these stories that are eerily similar to the ancient Greek gods with Odin and with Thor, with the, with the hammer and the lightning and the thunder. I mean, it's as if all those quote-unquote gods appeared all around the world and people created different stories around them, even though they're all the same. And by the way, I wish to tell the audience right now that, look, when I talk about gods, has nothing to do with God, has nothing to do with the force of creation. It's lowercase g, and it's pretty much a misunderstanding of our ancestors because they didn't understand the nuts and bolts aspects behind those technological visits of flesh and blood extraterrestrials. And so our ancestors thought that those guys were divine in nature, which they never were. You're listening to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. Fair enough, folks. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Night Fright. I'm your host, of course, Brent Holland. Our guest tonight is none other than Giorgio A. Tusoklis. And we're talking about alien visitations early in the Early in the creation of mankind. Now, all this begs a question, of course, where did the technology come from, Giorgio? But were they also integral in making us? In other words, are we them and they are us? It beautifully said, because one of the main um, one of the main or the premises for the ancient astronaut theory essentially suggests that a long, long time ago, not only did extraterrestrials visit Earth, but also that, uh, you know, if you look at evolution, the ancient astronaut theory does not, does not negate evolution because we obviously have a fossil record. Obviously, evolu- a type of evolution did take place. However, even... Darwin himself admitted when he came up with his theory that something doesn't make sense because what he was missing were the in-between stages of all those different species. And in, in essence, I mean, Homo sapiens essentially just popped up about uh, 150,000 years ago. We just popped up. There is, yes, we have you know, ape-like ancestors or ancestors that look like us, you know, um, Neanderthal man, which, who, by the way, lived with us for, for about uh, 25,000 years, um, and we won. I mean, it's very bizarre, but to make a long story short, the ancient astronaut suggests that those leaps in evolution, those missing links, as Darwin called them, those in-between steps, that is where extraterrestrial intervention, a targeted mutation of our genes took, took place in the remote past. Wow. And the ancient texts are filled with, with those type of stories that, you know, you know God, you know, and, and then God created us in their own image. Now, if you have that sentence, grammatically, 
that sentence doesn't make any sense, and it's a Bible sentence. And of course, theologians are suggesting, well, you know, the Bible says there because the Holy Trinity is meant by there. Um, but any reputable Hebrew scholar has to tell you that the name or the term for the Hebrew term for God Hashem. is Elohim. Elohim, and okay, and Hashem. Elohim, exactly, yeah. and it is not a singular term; it is a plural right. term. So it means gods, and then all of a sudden the sentence reads, "And then the gods create man in their image." So then all of a sudden it makes sense, and so you're you're absolutely right with your question: Are we them or are they us? It's so frustrating to to you know hear. You know, bona fide professors talk about or suggest, oh, there is no way that extraterrestrials look like us, and there is no way that extraterrestrials would, would, would be human-like, and all this nonsense where, you know, pretty much the laws for life are, are given and are constant throughout the universe. So the question should not be, you know, what do the extraterrestrials look like, but is it possible that we look like the extraterrestrials, and I think that's what it is. We are basically just an offspring, a, a, a hybrid of whatever is out there or whoever is out there. There's definitely something there, and it's very interesting that you mentioned the ancient texts, and I'm going to tell you a story in just a second. But first, folks, I just want to tell you who you're listening to. You're listening to Brent Hall, and this, of course, is Night Fright. If you go to the www.nightfrightshow.com website, there you will find a wealth of information, but most importantly tonight, you're going to find a link to our guest tonight. And you just click on that link, it'll take you right to his website. And our guest tonight, of course, is Giorgio Tusaklis. And if that name sounds familiar, it really should, because he's had all kinds of great shows on ancient aliens in the world, on Discovery Channel, History Channel, uh, oh, many of all the channels. If you've seen a documentary recently on this subject matter, chances are it comes from our guest tonight. To continue with that story, I studied Torah in Montreal, and I was just telling my associate producers this story, actually, and it's a wonderful story, where the Big Bang, just imagine a seed. A seed falls from a tree, and that's the Big Bang. Everything that emanates from that seed, another tree will grow up and release other seeds, and other trees will grow and release other trees. Everything emanates from that single seed. It is all intrinsically joined together. In other words, alien life forms of any kind are part of us, and we are part of them. It's all intrinsically connected, and I think that's wonderful. Let's talk a little bit about the Torah. Now, there are many indications, as you just mentioned, in the Torah. That's the Hebrew Bible, folks, the Old Testament, if you will. Are there any indications in the Christian Gospels that indicate aliens being of that era? And I have an important question to ask you after that. Of course. No, and, and look, the, 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 the Bible, especially especially the Old Testament, is a treasure trove of ancient astronaut-related topics. And, you know, right from the get-go, I would like to say that, you know, one of the questions I'm being asked the most is, yes, do sir. I believe in God? And the answer is, yes, absolutely do I believe in God. However, 
my version of God might be different than your version of God. I mean, if you were to ask me, do you believe in the God of the Old Testament? The answer is absolutely not, because according to the ancient astronaut theory, the God that is described in the Bible is a lowercase g. That individual has nothing to do with being almighty. Nothing. Because, let's be honest, since when does a God, or my God, does not need a vehicle with which to go from point A to point B? Or my God, you know, doesn't need, has no uh, requirement for any experimentation by saying, okay, let's see what happens if we do this. And then, boom, something happens that you did not expect, and all right, so let's have a big flood. Uh, you know, well, if God really knew, or, you know, in my opinion, God is omniscient, omnipresent, and so on and so forth, well, that is uh, absolutely not the case in, in the Old Testament. So that is the wonderful thing that, uh, you know, the Old Testament is filled with these bizarre references that we have, you know, the book of Ezekiel, where Ezekiel witnesses this bizarre thing. Uh, and it's an eyewitness report. It's not something that he says, you know, uh, that it was a vision. It, it was his thing. So, you know, the bottom line is, that something happened in our remote past and um, we are living in such exciting times that I think that it is our generation, our society, that slowly but surely will come to grips that not only are we not alone in the universe, but we've never been alone and they've always, always been here. Wow, that's very, very profound, my friend. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. Now that important question I wanted to ask you. 2,000 years ago, there was a fellow that walked this earth, and he is a legend he performed miracles, he walked on the water, he healed the ill. He resurrected himself. Was Jesus Christ, in your perspective, from your opinion, was he an alien? Look, here's the thing, that in my opinion we're all aliens, because we Good all answer. carry alien DNA. Good yeah. answer. So why think that Jesus Christ was an alien? Um in the way you ask the question, of course, my answer is no. Of course I don't think that, that Jesus was an alien. Just like, you know, you and me were not aliens either. Even though we all do have yeah. this alien DNA, which will, science will discover eventually. Now, the reason why I'm saying that is because, fine, we do have the story of the Virgin Mary, you know, Immaculate Conception, so you could conceivably say, well, maybe that was in vitro fertilization by an extraterrestrial race, what have you. Very interesting. But by the way, you know, uh, the Virgin Mary is not the only Immaculate Conception that we can read in the Holy Books. There's also a couple of uh, Immaculate Conceptions in the Old Testament. That's right. There are Immaculate Conceptions in other, quote-unquote, Holy Books. And so my personal opinion is that Jesus Christ was a historical figure, 
he learned his ideas and uh, gathered his knowledge growing up, because if you look at the Bible, you know, we know Jesus exists uh, until about he's six, until he's about six years old, and then he sort of just disappears, and, and uh, he reappears briefly, and then he di disappears again, and then, you know, we see him uh, the short time before he, his death, uh, he dies on the cross. Well, there is a very intriguing uh, theory or multiple theories out there that um, Jesus might have learned all of his knowledge by Buddhist and, and Hindu monks while traveling Tibet, India, and the far, far east. So, you know, the, the whole Asian area. So now that is highly intriguing, but all over that area, we have these references which, which are directly, um, which were directly tied to Jesus' life 2,000 years ago of this guy by the name of Isa, who traveled from monastery to monastery. And so I just think that he was a, an incredible person who not only you know, uh, gathered all this knowledge, because, if you, by the way, if you compare original Christianity, the original teachings of Jesus and the original teachings of Buddha, they're virtually identical. So that's why all this is also very intriguing, um, that he was just a very incredible person who had the capability, the capacity of moving a, a whole a whole generation, or to you know, to just move a whole bunch of people in a in a very positive way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, I've never seen the problem, um, the conflict that many people see between the theory that ancient aliens came here and perhaps were part of their DNA, as you say, and uh, and God, the the ultimate creator. I've never seen right. the conflict ever. And and there shouldn't be any because. You know, to be honest with you, if if you were to agree that whatever is described in the Old Testament truly is God Almighty, then that that's that's pretty frightening because uh, that God that's described in the Old Testament, uh, you know, he throws hissy fits, he's uh, he kills people, he destroys countries, I mean, he destroys cities, and all sorts of different things. So. You know, that's not my idea of God, to be honest with you. And, you know, the theologians are saying, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. That's just the Old Testament's the God of vengeance, and the New Testament, because of Jesus, uh, it's the God of love. It, it's complete nonsense. I mean, it, well, how, why did, why did God all of a sudden change his, his or, 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 or her, you know, uh, idea about Earth all of a sudden? I mean, it, it, it makes no sense. Now, but I also think that, the ancient astronaut theory aids the entire philosophy or the entire question of where do we come from or what is God, because it essentially means that there is, you know, multiple species, multiple intelligent species out there, which, in my opinion, only suggests that the entire creation was way bigger than what we currently believe. Because according to uh, the Catholic Church, well, not until a few months ago, 
we're the pinnacle of creation. We're the best. We're, we're the crown of creation. We're the best thing that's ever been that's ever been conceived of in the universe. And if that were true, oh my gosh, <laughs> that that to me would be an insult in the face of God. Jeez, I certainly hope we're not the most intelligent creation in the universe. God help us. And the pun is fully intended there, folks. Our guest tonight is Giorgio A. Tusakalis, and we're talking about ancient astronauts. Were they aliens? Were they not? And that's where we're going through the whole show tonight. So you'll be able to decide on your own if you think that the information we're relaying tonight is credible. And I, for one, think it is. I've never seen that conflict between... Uh, religion, if you will, and um, your spirituality. I've never seen that conflict, and it makes perfect sense to me. Uh, as I said before, I hold every being in the universe as a brother or a sister. If you go to the www.nightfrightshow.com website, right there you're going to find a lot of information about tonight's guests. On top of that, not only will you be able to download the show, but something new we've started in the past few weeks, and that is Night Fright Television. Now, that's something, don't be afraid, it's only television, where we're putting, we're, ta- yeah, we're taping all these shows and we're putting them up on the internet for you to not only listen to, but see as well. And uh, we would like your feedback on that and any suggestions you may have, that would be great. Once again, that's show. Dot com. There, of course, the archives are still there from all our past shows. We do a lot of stuff on the Kennedy assassination, conspiracy stuff, first-person witnesses. We had Dr. Robert McClelland on the show, as you all know. He was the official person that worked, first official doctor that worked on JFK as JFK was rolled into the emergency room in Parkland Hospital that day. He did, in fact, see the back of JFK's head blown out, which means, of course, a frontal shot conspiracy without question. There's shows on Bigfoot there. There's shows on the Templar Knights. A whole wealth of information. Now, they're all free. That's right, free for you to download. No problem at all to put them on your iPod. Wonderful resource for you if you're making a long-distance travel across the Trans-Canada here from coast to coast to coast, three coasts in Canada. Truckers love this stuff, as you know. Keep sending those emails and Thank you profoundly for those. We're going to go back now to our guest, Giorgio A. Tisaklis, and we're going to talk some more about ancient astronauts and the research behind it. Can we talk about some of the phenomena that is out there that we've come across over the years that kind of indicates that indeed we have been visited in the past because there's no other explanation for it. Can we talk about, for example, the Nazca lines in Peru? A lot of people aren't familiar with those that are listening to the show right now. This is kind of an introductory for them. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Absolutely. Thank and you. the Nazca lines are a very uh, interesting um, aspect of the ancient astronaut theory. And essentially... The, the Nazca lines exist about um, 400 kilometers, 320 miles south of Lima, Peru. You could basically take the uh, Pacific Coast Highway all the way down from California, even from Canada. You can go all the way down, and inadvertently, if you're in Peru, you will pass through the Nazca um, Plateau, and it's this uh, incredible desert, and you can't really see much when you stand there on the ground. 
But the moment that you sit in an airplane, a little, you know, chestnut prop plane, and you head up into the air, a picture book unfolds underneath your very eyes. And all of a sudden, you see a whole bunch of figures, a bunch of shapes and animals, uh, such as uh, a fish, a monkey, a hummingbird, a whale. I mean, all those different things. And, um, and that is intriguing and interesting. But what's even more intriguing is that not only that, but you also find these gigantic long lines, lines that go for miles and miles, but also wide bands, bands that come together in a way as if they were some type of an airport. Now, nobody in the ancient astronaut theory suggests that Nazca was indeed an ancient spaceport. Nobody has said that. I and mean, if you go and be a reacher, it's of the gods. Eric von Daniken himself never said that. But what we are saying is that from the air, Nazca does look like an airport. And it really does. It really does. Um, but, yeah. Right. But to suggest that, you know, uh, aliens landed on those airstrips, I mean, it's completely ludicrous because... You know, uh, what, you're going to travel, you know, the interstellar distances, and then before you can land with one of your shuttles, you have to build an airstrip? I don't think so. Uh, it makes absolutely no sense. So what could have happened, in our opinion, is the following, and that is, still today, NASCA is one of the few places where uh, it essentially, it's a place that is filled with raw materials. And you basically, if you go and study that place, you can learn a lot about planet Earth. So let's say ETs a long time ago sent a probe to that area, and the natives saw this probe descend from the sky. Obviously, they were all flabbergasted and, and afraid, and they ran away because they didn't know what was going on. It had to be something divine because they didn't understand the nuts and bolts aspects behind those things. So after, you know, just like we have now rovers on Mars, I mean, those rovers leave behind tire tracks. That's right. So just like, just like the rover, the Mars rover leaves behind tire tracks, maybe some extraterrestrial machine left behind these long lines. And then the machine disappeared again after taking some samples. Or it might have even been a, a manned vehicle. Who, who knows? Um... However, when the natives then came back out, they saw what just had happened. And in order for those gods, lowercase g, for them to return, the natives thought, okay, let's do something here and let's make them, let's build them a message, let's build them some signs so that when they look down, because the one thing that's crystal clear is, you can only see the Nazca lines from the air. You don't see anything on the ground. That's right. So, so very interestingly enough, um, what's even more intriguing is the fact that there are two mountaintops in Nazca which are completely missing. I mean, you have uh, two mountaintops that have been sheared off as if somebody came with a big, gigantic butter knife and just cut off the summit of the mountain. And nowhere around the area, by the way, 
do we find the remnants or the rubble of those two mountaintops? I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely insane. Absolutely. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. And that's, I think, the key point is why would they make these images on ground level, on a surface level, when they didn't have any access to airplanes or even a higher mountain to look down upon them from? They are virtually at the top of this mountain already. Right, exactly. I mean, no, and and, and then it's a very uh, fascinating point where, you know, if you look at the pictures of the Nazca lines, you can actually see how some lines are actually older than some other lines because you can clearly detect that some of those lines are overlapping and that one line was made before the other line was put on top of it. So, you know, the, the conventional idea that it's easy to do this by just walking on the, on the desert floor and, you know, scratching, scratch, uh, uh, removing a couple of um, pebbles and, and exposing uh, lighter sand and all of this, that that is it, is unfortunately not true. Because, number one, I've been there, many people have been there, and something happened there, as if this, these, these lines were sort of, um, maybe they, they used acid or, or something very bizarre, because you can't just go there and scratch off a few pebbles and, and expose the lighter surface. And um, also, you know, it does, even though it's very rare, it does rain there from time to time. And so um, even through the rain, I mean, if you build a sandcastle and, and there is rain, well, then that sandcastle is gone. So at Nazca, though, it, it has rained for, for many, many hundreds of years now. And so that means the lines are still there. So whatever main, the mainstream tries to tell us, nothing, nothing has been solved at Nazca. The mystery is still there and very clearly. And don't let anyone else tell you something else. I agree with you wholeheartedly, folks. www.nightfrightshow.com. Just go there, click on tonight's guest link, and that'll take you right to our guest tonight website, Giorgio A. Tiscalos. We're talking about ancient astronauts. I want to talk a little bit, Giorgio, now. I just want to stay on this same thought because, as I say, a lot of the folks that are listening right now, this is their first introduction to something called the ancient astronauts. And there's something called Easter Island, which many people probably have heard something about, but they don't know quite what has taken place there. Can we talk about Easter Island just for a few seconds? Absolutely. The Easter Island is, uh, as the name indicates, an island and it's in the middle of the Pacific. It, today, it belongs to the country of Chile. And Easter Island is the furthest inhabited island in the world, where there is absolutely nothing except for seawater um, in a circumference of about 1,800 miles. Now, that's a big body of water. And uh, on Easter Island, what's 
fascinating there is that you have these gigantic stone heads, these elongated faces, stone heads that are absolutely humongous in size. Some of them up to 16 yards or about 15 yards tall because what nobody uh, really talks about is that the Easter Island heads that you see right now in pictures with almost every head the only you only the top one third is exposed the rest of the body is inside the earth yes so it's a magnificent magnificent feat of engineering and uh, the bottom line is that uh, nobody really knows how it was done because you know, I mean, these heads weigh in excess of 120 tons. And, you know, for, for natives to have, uh, you know, carved these out uh, with with uh, fingerlings and things like that, I mean, uh, we did find quarries there, but the bottom line is that, uh, you know, it, it, was, it, it was not possible for them because we're talking about a very igneous rock, something very hard, granite. And um, in order for you to do something or cut something out of granite, you need to have a, a tools that are harder than granite. And so, um, you know, even archaeologists in this day and age have tried to use these, these finger tools, these hand axes, and, uh, you know, they were picking away for, for two weeks, and they didn't even make a dent into uh, those stones. And so what's fascinating is the fact that if you read or listen to the native traditions of how these Easter Island heads were transported, then apparently it was done with some sort of a magical power that they referred to as mana. And mana allowed these stones to levitate and move from point A to point B. Now, I'm a huge skeptic in levitation, huge skeptic. However, uh, levitation is possible Scientists today are levitating golf balls every day. It's, it, I mean, it's not science fiction anymore. That's right. So it is conceivable that it could happen with big, you know, honking stones. And, um, you know, whenever I read an ancient text that there was some type of a magical spell or some magical device or anything to do with magic, I'm sorry to break it to everyone, but magic in that sense does not exist. It's complete nonsense. So what did our ancestors mean when they described something magic or a magician or, or a, you know, a, some type of a sorcerer with a magic wand with which that person was able to do something magnificent? Was it really magic or was it misunderstood technology? And in my opinion, it 100% uh, was misunderstood technology. There you have it, folks. You're listening to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. We're speaking with Giorgio A. Tusaklis today, and we're talking about ancient astronaut research. Did the aliens come? Well, I'm making my mind up. In the ancient times, perhaps you, with this information we're giving you tonight, can make your mind up as well. www.nightfrightshow.com, www.nightfrightshow.com. Of course, just go to tonight's guests, click on the information there, 
and that'll take you right to Giorgio's website. Giorgio, I want to continue. This is a fascinating subject tonight, and I'm sitting here at the edge of my seat because there's so much information, and a lot of the pieces are coming together for me, the way you're describing them, and it's making a lot of sense without question. And that's both scary for me because uh, I guess I'm a traditional skeptic, but it's also exciting at the same time because those questions I've had are being answered. Why would they choose Earth? Why would the aliens choose Earth? Why Earth specifically? Why not some other um, uh, star cluster? Why not go somewhere else? Maybe they have. I don't know. But what was it about Earth? Exactly, and and you said maybe they have, and that's exactly it. Are are we sure that that they didn't? I mean, uh, you know, if and well, not if, but you know, I, I am convinced yes, that our civilization, our whole Earth, is is fairly young, and let's just say another civilization is uh, ahead of us or is older not by thousands, but by a hundred thousand years, even million, a million years or millions of years. Well, you know, today's mathematicians, and one of them was this uh, Michael T. Savage guy who wrote a book called The Millennial Project. Mm-hmm. He essentially suggested that even with, by only traveling 2% of the speed of light, which, which is attainable, um, you can conceivably, if when you arrive at the destination planet, you build another spaceship and then two spaceships go out and then those two spaceships build another spaceship, so then four spaceships, eight spaceships, 16 spaceships, 32 spaceships, like this over a course of 10 million years, you could conceivably, theoretically, well, not actually, not math, uh, theoretically, but mathematically, you can colonize the entire galaxy in 10 million years. Now, I know that that is a crap load of time, but in the face of the, of the chronology of the universe, 10 million years is nothing. It's a blip. So, you know, who says that we are not part of a bigger picture? And, you know, let's say that a uh, hundred years or, or 500 years from now, we will be able to travel uh, in outer space and explore deep space. Well, will we just, you know, uh, second star to the right, uh, go ahead, let's, let's fly? Or will we say, hold on a second, where are we going? Do we have a destination planet? And just like we won't just, uh, you know, fly out there on good luck. We will know approximately where we're headed. If there's some Earth-like planets where, you know, it would be conducive for us to explore that area more. I think extraterrestrials would be the same thing. And Earth, amongst all the stars, yes, sir, and any Earth-like planet, we all stand out. It, it all stands out like a like a beacon of light. So of course, extraterrestrials would come here because of the consistency and the nature of our planet. So I mean, it, it, no, because mm-hmm. let's see, it's it's it, I find it so fascinating because the scientists are all asking the wrong questions. They make it out to be that we're so special, and we're really not. 
you know? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's, it's amazing that, uh, you know, and it's also the scientists who are saying that, oh, extraterrestrials would never look like us. And I'm like, nonsense, because what extraterrestrials could not be like these blobs. And by the way, when I speak of extraterrestrials, I mean intelligent life. I don't mean microbial, uh, you know, microbial beings or anything like this. So, I mean, it's very bizarre that, you know, we're, we're just a bunch of navel gazers here. We really are. You know, you must be clairvoyant, Giorgio, because one of my questions for you coming up, why the resistance to this newfound knowledge? What is the threat to mainstream, not only media, but mainstream science? Well, uh, that actually, look, there, there are two types of people out there. One, you have the very, very religious side, and, and that camp, they try to explain everything away with God and with the Bible and with creation and, you know, just with the invisible man upstairs. Then you have a second, you know, and of course I'm overgeneralizing here. I mean, I'm, I'm wholly aware of this. And then you have um, this other camp, the other 50% are the people who rely on science. And, you know, they say, well, this can be explained with with this theory, that can be explained with, with that formula, and so on and so forth. However, even though both sides disagree on how stuff can be explained, they both agree on one very crucial point. Both camps are truly convinced that mankind is the greatest creation of all time, that we are the pinnacle of creation, we're the crown of creation, there is no way something bigger and better than us exists. And that's a downfall. Because, look, people like you, people like me, Whole bunch of uh, a whole bunch of the audience. If extraterrestrials were to show up tomorrow, I would welcome it. I think it would be great because it will not be like in the movies. Forget it. It's all nonsense. Um, I would welcome that, but that would pose a huge problem, not only to the church but also to science. Um, and you know what I worry about, especially with the scientists, is that they'll then say. Oh, we knew it all along. We just have to play, you know, we just have to play the debunker card and stuff like this. So, who knows? Who knows? Very good point. And uh, you know, Stanton Friedman was on the show several weeks ago, and he was telling us about uh, just before the launch of uh, the Sputnik. There was naysayers before that saying that there was no reason to go to outer space. We would never go to outer space, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Within two weeks of that the Sputnik, of course, that little satellite, folks, that uh, the Soviet Union launched was right in orbit. So there you go. So science sometimes a little tight-assed, to put it mildly. <laughs> folks, our guest tonight, Giorgio A. Tusaklis, and we're talking about ancient astronaut research. Now, we're going to have to start to wrap up, Giorgio, but I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about your work in tandem, the important work that Eric Von Daniken started and that now you are involved in. Can we talk a little bit about that? 
Oh, sure. Um, about 12 years ago, in 1998, we, uh, Eric Van Dengen and I, we uh, started an organization called the AASRA, which is the Archaeology, Astronautics, and City Research Association. And uh, it's the only ancient astronaut society in the world, uh, also with us publishing a magazine called Legendary Times. And in that magazine and with the society, we're basically exploring you know, the, the latest findings in the ancient astronaut field. And what's really great is that, uh, you know, Eric now has been doing this since 1968. I mean, actually since 1962, uh, because, you know, before Chariots of the Gods came out as a book in Germany in 1968, it was printed as a, as a serial um, in, in periodicals all over Germany. And that started in 1965-66. And then, you know, Eric was able to show the publisher or the printing houses, look, this is successful, I'm getting letters, let's, uh, you know, do this book. And, you know, he's gotten many, many, many rejection letters uh, until finally, you know, someone took a chance and uh, the rest, as they say, is, is history. And, you know, Twilight of the Gods, which is his latest book, that's book number 28 that he's written since 1968. So it's um, it's a quite a, a prolific career, and uh, at age 76, he's still going strong. He's still on lecture tour, mainly in Europe. But uh, it's it's um, yeah, the man the man definitely uh, you know it's a life's work for sure. And a very, very profound life work as well, as is yours too, sir. And I want to thank you for taking the time out tonight and telling the folks that are listening to the show right now and educating them to the possibilities to think outside the box. I know that's a cliche term that we kind of all fall back to, default to, but certainly in this case, it really represents what we were talking about tonight. Looking at things and looking at the evidence and deriving from that evidence the truth, not just what we would like to see in the evidence. And I think that's what both you and Eric have done over the years, and I thank you for that. Thank you very much. I really appreciate having been on the, been on the show. It's been a real pleasure, and do come back soon, my friend. You got it. <laughs> okay. Thank you. All the best to you. Have Bye a good night. night. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to Night Fright. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. The time is now. And now your host, Brent Holland. Folks, if you've been joining us, we were speaking with Giorgio A. Tusakis. I want to thank everybody for listening tonight. I'm Brent Holland for Joel the Shadow. For Aaron Solskis, for Edward Georgian, all associates producers, see you next. This is Peter telling a story. When he was nine years old, it began as a typical seance, and as they were nearing the end of it, my grandmother had retreated to the kitchen to put the tea kettle on and place on the large tray the carrot cake she had baked in the afternoon. Walter suddenly rose from his chair and turned his back to the table. Still in the trance state, his actions smooth yet deliberate, he slowly raised one leg 
and then the other and knelt on the chair. Now I should tell you, Walter was the channeler for this seance, facing backwards. When he spoke, his voice was shaky and just loud enough for the sitters to hear and it sounded completely different from anything they had heard before. Steinmetz here. You will not succeed, the spirit said through Walter, who remained kneeling on the chair, still facing away from the table around which the group was seated. The instrument you contemplate is not possible. Vibrations are too fine, too many. Ideal conversions of vibrations can never be created by those who remain on this plane. It was not until later that my father discovered who Steinsmans was. Karl Proteus Steinmetz, 1865, died in 1923. A Prussian-American mathematician and physicist who enlightened the world of engineering with his brilliant description of the alternating current, sounds like Tesla, enabling engineers to design electrical motors using applied mathematical calculations rather than by trial and error. Steinmetz had a mind like a steel trap, but his body was encumbered by a debilitating deformity that prevented him from sitting upright. He did most of his work. Are you ready for this, folks? while kneeling in his chair. From the book, A History of Ghosts, The True Story of Seances, Mediums, Ghosts, and Ghostbusters by Peter H. Aykroyd, forward by Dan Aykroyd. Available at Chapters Indigo, right around the country. Also, just go to the Triple W Night Fright Show, the Hutcom website, and click on the book cover. We'll take you right there. Okay, guys, the next story is about basements. So what is it about basements anyways? It always scares the uh, bejesus out of us. Is it the fact we're down there alone and nobody can hear us and the vulnerability of it all? Or maybe it's being alone with those dark shadows. This one's from Lee via email. Hi Brent, really enjoy the show. Uh, this is a story about me growing up at my mom's in the 80s and 90s in Montreal. I was always scared of the basement. During the day it was fine, but as soon as it got dark out, I always felt that I was not alone down there. If I had to go down there for any reason, I always turned on all the lights and found it very, very cold. Not just drafty, but cold, cold. This story happened just before my mom moved from my childhood home. I guess I would be in my mid-twenties. I was in the process of getting my stuff together for the move and went to the basement to see what I could find down there to clear out. My friend Kyla, I hope that's pronounced right, K-Y-L-A, and I had found a box filled with old black and white pictures in it, in a secluded part of the basement that we virtually just used for storage all those years and never went into. Anyways, there was the box. Someone had placed it on the top shelf all the way at the back and I guess when they moved, they couldn't see it. You'd have to be a giant, ha ha ha, and left it behind. We opened the box and wiped the dust off with my hand. We started to look at the photos. I had no idea at all who the people were. I was standing up and Kyla was sitting down. She would pull a picture out of the box and then hand it to me. All of a sudden, I got really cold, and then it felt like someone was standing directly behind me, breathing on my neck. 
Kyla asked me what was wrong and I told her. We switched places to see what would happen. Kyla took the same picture in her hand and stood there. She felt the breathing on her neck also. Whoever it was did not like the fact that we were looking at those pictures. The person had to be at least six feet as they were breathing down my neck. We left the basement really fast. When we told her husband Seamus about this incident, oh, this is interesting, guys, listen to this. He told me that when he was looking after my mom's cat while we were on vacation, he said that every time he entered the house and passed the basement door, he felt that he was being watched by someone or something. I'm writing this to you and the hairs on the back of my neck are standing up. Well, mine just did too, guys. And that was from Lee. Thanks, Lee. Okay, here's an email from Christine. And she's writing today from Montreal West. And this is a spooky, spooky story, she says, that happened when her husband was away on business. Ah, those business trips. Shortly before I was married, I had an experience with unexplained phenomena. I had recently moved into the apartment that I was going to share with my new husband. He was away on a business trip and I was sleeping in the guest room. Sometime in the early morning, the sun was just beginning to shine through the curtains. I got the sensation of someone putting their arm around my shoulder in a reassuring hug. There was nothing threatening about the gesture, but seeing as I was supposed to be home alone, the idea that someone was with me set my heart pounding. Tell me about it, I would have been out of there in 10 seconds. I cautiously got out of bed and checked all the doors and windows. They were all properly secured. The last time I experienced something ghostly was when my husband was once again away on business. He's got to stop doing that. And my first child was only an infant. It was in the early hours in the morning when I felt myself sinking into my mattress. It felt like someone was putting one of those leaded blankets that are used in the dentist's office when x-rays are taken on me. I was alarmed and looked up. I could have sworn that I saw a shadowy figure on the opposite wall near the door to my room. Oh my. I sat up and looked again. There was nothing there. I went to check on my child and checked to see that the apartment was secure. There was no way that someone could have come in, covered me, and left again without making any noise or coming in through a locked door. There you have it. Not particularly hair-raising. Well, I don't know about that, but interesting just the same. I haven't had any more experiences like it, and now it's been over 10 years. Voice in the dark for paranormal anger. 
Conspiracy Radio. 